morning. Welcome everyone to the IMA. For anyone who doesn't already know, my name is Aileen Burns and together with Johan Lund, I co-direct this institution. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which we gather this evening and pay my respect to elders past and present. Tonight we're joined by Nigel Prince, director of the Contemporary Art Gallery, CAG, in Vancouver. And prior to his tenure at CAG, Nigel was curator at Icon Gallery in Birmingham. Nigel has worked on exhibitions with renowned artists such as Olafur Eliasson, Andrea Zittel, Martin Boyce, and Susan Phillips, of course, amongst many others. Johan and I have had the great pleasure to work with Nigel on a few projects, the first being an exhibition and major catalog largely undertaken by Nigel, actually, <laughs> for Ryan Gander, um, most recently on the commissioning of uh, Patrick Staff's new film installation, which many of you saw, called The Foundation, and we're very pleased, <laughs> both Nigel and we, I'd say, <laughs> that the books have just arrived in the shop, so do check it out in the IMA motto bookshop. And moving forward, uh, we're working together on a a version of this Gordon Bennett Be Polite exhibition for Vancouver, which we're very excited about. So Nigel's visit has been made possible through the support of Arts Queensland through their Projects and Programs Grants stream. And as always, we're grateful to the Australia Council and to Arts Queensland for their ongoing support of this institution. Nigel's talk will address a number of projects both from the UK and from Canada, and it'll fit nicely in with our ongoing lecture series, What Can Art Institutions Do? Both of the institutions and the projects um, that bring them alive are public institutions in, this, in the instance of this talk. So please join me in welcoming Nigel to Brisbane. Hello, uh, hello everyone. Uh, thanks to Aileen, Johan, and to the, um, the governmental support that enables me to be here with you this evening. Um, it's only my second visit to Australia, my first to Brisbane. Um, so it's rather, rather good to be here, thanks. And, um, and to be spending a little bit of time starting to Get, get a feel for this part of the world. Um, what I have in the talk, as, as, as Aileen has said, is a lot of images, some of which I'll speak about, some of which I'll, they'll flash up. So as we say in England, like the proverbial ice cream man, stop me if you want to buy one. So you can, um, if there's anything in particular, since it's not like a lecture to 200 people, Feel free to uh, interject and, and, and ask uh, any questions if there's anything further you'd, you'd like to know about a specific, uh, specific image or, or, or image of a project, I should say, that's, that, that's there. The first image then is um, most of you, some of you, will, will, all of you will, will, will recognize it's the facade of um, Millbank, uh, Tate Britain, as, as it's known now. And I, I put this, I start the talk with this for a couple of reasons. One is my curatorial career began not at this Tate, but at Tate Liverpool, um, where I worked across the 
public programming and the curatorial teams. So like a number of people uh, in the UK, Tate, Tate touches our, uh, our, our professional lives in, in, in a variety of ways. But I think more importantly, the piece of work, the neon piece that, that, that we see across the portico, the whole world plus the work equals the whole world, is uh, again, some of you or all of you would recognize it's a piece by uh, artist Martin Creed. And there's something about the, that as a statement in its myriad of, uh, of, of, of levels of, of, of meaning and understanding that I, I think I've always held, held close as a, as a guiding principle to, to the works that the artists that, 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 I, that, I, that I've worked with over my career so far. Uh, and it, it's in many ways, it's a bit of a touchstone and as a rather sort of succinct but quite sort of far-reaching far statement. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd just suggest that you sort of hold, hold that in your mind, perhaps, as, uh, as, as, as we go through things. So this is the gallery that, where I work now. Rather modest. Um, condo, those of you who have ever been to Vancouver, it's, it's in a particular area on the edge of Yale Town in the downtown peninsula. Uh, which was, this area was developed uh, immediately following the time when Vancouver held Expo in 85, 86. Uh, and it's a good example, to my mind, of a, a rather sort of bland architecture that can blight the city of Vancouver with a, a genericism of, um, that Doug Coupland has written about um, in, in his Cities of Glass uh, book this green glass everywhere and a rather, a rather generic sort of stack boxes, no, nothing of any fabulous uh, architectural features. But the gallery, as, as, as you see, is, uh, th this is actually um, just after I'd arrived. It looks slightly different on the front now, as you'll see from, from some other images. Um, overall, somewhat smaller in a little smaller in scale than uh, than, than than the space that 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 Ema have have here but there's something about this that operates as a hub we see it as um as the sort of central hub from which we radiate out into into the world be it you know a block away a city away half a world away uh, and, and again, I think through the other, other projects I'll, 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 I'll be showing you and speak about, ho hopefully that, that as a, an essential sort of modus operandi will, uh, will become clear. So an institution that is called the Contemporary Art Gallery uh, is a rather generic, perhaps the most generic title possible for, for somebody working in contemporary visual arts. So what, what exactly does that mean? What, it, what, 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 it, what is it that a contemporary art space, and especially one titled the Contemporary Art Gallery, should, should present? So is it images such as these, uh, prints such as these, um, which is one of the opening shows I made when I arrived in Vancouver, which is uh, wood engravings, about as big as my thumb, um, that uh, were produced in the 18th century by uh, British wood engraver Thomas Buick. 
So what is it about presenting work that was made in the 18th century in a contemporary art space? What does that speak to us about in terms of what the reasoning, the rationale, what, why? And there's something, I won't give you a history lesson about Thomas Buick, but there's something about this, this, a, a whole series of issues and ideas present in the work that are still very pertinent today. Things to do with the environment, things to do with ecology, things to do with our relationship to the natural world, things to do with the folly of humankind, the, the folly that we fail to learn from history and continue to make the same mistakes through ignorance, through vanity, through a whole, whole variety of things. So there's something about the ideas, explicit and implicit within, within this work that seemed relevant for a space called the Contemporary Art Gallery to present? Or is it work that has never been seen before outside of the place it was built? Here, um, although this isn't at CAG, this is uh, Pinacothèque de Moderne in, uh, in, in music, uh, in, Mu in music, in Munich. Um, this was a show I made, very last show I made at Icon, which then traveled to Munich. Uh, it was a show of Don Judd's furniture. And these pieces you see here were the first works that Judd actually made himself when he moved, moved uh, from New York to Marfa, Texas. So contemporary visual arts, I would argue, is one of the freest of all arts disciplines. Things that nudge into design, things that nudge into relocating from, from from where they were and how they functioned within that context? Or is it work such as this, uh, uh, a small-scale show we made at CAG uh, by the artist Nancy Holt, who recently died. Uh, these were photographs that she made in, um, in the late 60s and early 70s and never with uh, her then-husband, Bob, Bob Smithson, and they'd never been printed before. She only printed them in 2013 not long before she died. So there's a sense of a, a revisiting a key moment and what is present within all of this work are the propositions that she continued to then explore through uh, you know, the, the, the much better work, the, the large scale land work such as sun tunnels that, that, she be, that established her reputation. Or is it an artist such as um, this, this person, Carmen Herrera. Um, Carm was 100 this year born in Cuba, lived in New York for a while, moved to Paris immediately following the Second World War, lived in Paris until 52, then returned to live in New York where she's lived ever since. Um, Carmen has a career retrospective opening at the Whitney next year. And as she said to me this summer, it's about time, isn't it? <laughs> but this show was... Um, a survey, these, these works here, 1947, 1946, 47, 48, works that she was making in Paris. This piece, 1951, 1951, and if you, if you could see that work here now, and then you think of work that came after, sort of like painting Stella was making perhaps in the 60s, 
to do with objecthood, to do with repetition, work that op artist, although Carmen is very, Carmen's very determined not to be labeled uh, that, uh, heralds, heralds things that were to come. This was the second floor of, of this, this large-scale retrospective uh, made with Carmen. Also, maybe it's about uh, reflecting on, you know, straightforward stuff like different media, diff but, but, but how conventional media now becomes mediated through, through newer technologies. So large-scale wood, wood engravings, you know, one of the most conventional, technically one of the most conventional means of, 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 of recording an image, but, but on this, this, this huge sort of scale, you know, like two meters high, something like that, two and a half meters high. Christiana Baumgartner. Maybe it's also about working with artists to commission new work. This is a large-scale commission we made with uh, Mike Nelson a couple of summers ago where we brought Mike out to, to Vancouver with his family for the summer and he spent the time um, retrieving all of this material from, um, from, from, from off the shores around the coasts of, uh, of, uh, near to Vancouver and BC. or a different kind of commission. Here, uh, artist from San Francisco, Claire Rojas, comes out of the, you know, um, that, that, that whole scene in the Bay Area. Um, kind of graffiti kids, skateboard kids, st street art in inverted commas, rather unfortunate labeling. Uh, but this, this large scale cathedral-like um, installation by Claire. Or it might be paper collage. Again, very conventional means, but again, done a different scale. This time, Arturo Herrera, Venezuelan artist, lives in Berlin. And there's a number of works that speak about narrative and storytelling while retaining a certain sort of formal look. This is Monika Sosnowska, a series of uh, structures based on uh, market stalls. In, in the area of, area of Warsaw that no longer exists, but she remembers growing up as a kid. Matt Monaghan, LA, figurative sculpture from abstraction to figuration. So again, the, I think it's important that as, you know, in many ways as public institutions, there's a, there's a breadth, like a varied diet. You know, it's good for you to have a varied diet rather than eating the same thing that you enjoy all the time. And certainly I wouldn't expect everyone to enjoy everything that we do, but if people are curious, enough to come along and to think about what we do, then maybe that's a good start. Nayari Bagramian from Iran. Part of the work was installed in our offices so that visitors could come up to the offices and see behind the scenes. Or Francis Stark. And then this is another case. This is a show made um, with uh, James Welling. And this was revisiting, it was, this was presenting work that he'd made up to and including the photographs such as the foil series, the drape series in 1980 as part of where, when that really sort of established his reputation uh, as part of that pictures generation uh, coming out of conceptualism in particular on the West Coast. 
Um, but this, a, a lot of this work was work that he made as a student, everything from like some of the very first watercolors he made as a, an 18-year-old through to the, the photographs perhaps that, 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 that he, became, he became known for. Or it might be infiltrating other th parts of the institution outside of um, the white cube gallery spaces. It's a little text piece in the bathroom by um, Nedko Solikov. So it's the installation, part of the installation upstairs. Again, storytelling, narrative, kind of trickster stuff. Again, this was a retrospective that went back to uh, work from the 70s and 80s. Um, work that he was making when he was in the, uh, when Bulgaria was still part of the Eastern Bloc when he was a soldier, through to, through to more recent work. Kiprian Murashan, Romania. New, newly commissioned work, the uh, garbage cans that were like a kind of enlarged kids model railway and the, uh, the video projection, this uh, puppet theater out coming up out of a, a, a dumpster like a Punch and Judy. And then there's Andrea Zittel. This is actually a project before I worked at Icon that, uh, that made with Andrea. She came over to the UK and lived and worked in the space in which the final piece was presented for a month and then lived in the piece when it was open to the public for a month. This is where we then took the, the work uh, to, to New York. This is now in the collection of the MCA in Chicago. Quite nice, because it's got my A to Z of Birmingham in there. Me as a younger man, with, with, with a couple of the local artists who worked with uh, Andrea as her assistants. And then part of the reason I'm in Canada, I guess, is because I was known as somebody who had championed contemporary Canadian work outside of Canada. Stephen Shearer. Often these are sort of first museum shows for artists. Work off-site, you know, in an industrial part of Birmingham where bands such as Black Sabbath used to work in the sort of uh, iron and steel works there. You know, the, the, home of, uh, the home of heavy metal. It seemed appropriate that we present a couple of Stevens, Stevens uh, poems there. Marcel Desama. Again, first museum shows for these artists. And then Roy Arden, one of the first artists from Canada I ever worked with. And this was the first show this is the show I inherited um, uh, when, when I arrived in Vancouver. And very different to the work. I mean, Roy is primarily known for photographic works, I think, it would be fair to say. And this, were, this, this marked a, a departure for him in terms of this new body of work of sculptural and painted pieces. So rather interesting that a contemporary art space can work not only with you know, artists early in their career, but artists who are mid-career, senior, but maybe provide them with an opportunity to try something out. I know I was speaking to Rachel today about that and the role that we play in supporting artists at different stages of their careers, but also helping enable, um, enable new, new work, new work to be made and maybe work that 
they're less confident about, that they feel like they're taking a chance with. This is Aaron Sheriff. Can't see that one very well because it's uh, so dark. It's, uh, Kevin Schmidt, an uh, artist in Vancouver. So these are sort of shows I've made with artists who are local to the scene in Vancouver since I've been there. Sharon Hayes, it's multi, multi-projector, 35 mil slide installation. These things flicking on and off. Juxtaposed with uh, Ruti Seller and Mayor uh, Amir. From, uh, from, from Tel Aviv, all dealing with protest. And then through to Rabamore, um, we commissioned a piece that used, uh, just when the Arab Spring broke, uh, that, that used footage that was out, out on YouTube, um, you know, pe- uh, pe- people filming, filming the, uh, the rebelling and the re- revolts there. Important, obviously, art, art isn't, separated out from very serious issues and that somehow it contributes to to those bigger more um, more far-reaching conversations and and moments of um, of revolt and, 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 and trying to affect change Sarah Brown from Ireland yeah this was actually, I think, the beginning of the conversation that, uh, that be- I began with uh, Aileen and, uh, and, and, uh, and Johan. Again, a lot of new, newly commissioned work within this project as a whole. And then Martin Boyce. Um, strong sense of narrative and storytelling within this installation that moved across three rooms from artificially lit to daylight, uh, from light to darkness, from a waiting area to a more activated space. And I should also mention that, as as Aileen mentioned in the introduction, a whole number of these projects are partnerships and collaborations with other museums and galleries. Um, So important, I feel, to... uh, to not be worried about going first or being territorial or, um, or somehow overly claiming ownership of something. Very important to, to, to work together. And then this is the first time I worked with Ryan Gander. Um, Ryan had never had a museum show at that stage. At this stage, 2006, I think. And he took a year off, this audacious thing for a young artist to say, I'm taking a year off making work. Sort of freaked out his, uh, he was with a different commercial series of galleries then, but it kind of freaked them out a little bit. So the only work that was let out in a year was work that was already made uh, for group shows. And through almost monthly series of studio visits, the exhibition over the course of about a year and a half took, took shape. And rather interestingly, the reviews that came out of this show spoke about a conversational tone, which I thought was an interesting one, that somehow the artist-to-curator relationship somehow became embedded and then extended into art and, art and audience. 
And that's, that's a rather sort of crucial moment, I think, in which, in which that happens, because I don't know any, because you could, you could argue that art doesn't exist without audience. And I don't know any artist who doesn't want someone to look at what they're doing and think about what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way Ryan work, was working at the time was just like a series of like A4 sheets with ideas written on them. And it would be, what about that? What about, you know, this most abstract of processes. And then sometimes, um, what do you call it? Like a, a prototype would be made for something or a test piece that's somehow taken away from the abstract piece of paper, you know, stapled to a wall that becomes a thing in the world. And does it still hold? The, the interest and some of those ideas were put on one side to be de developed a little bit further. Some actually fa found their way into, into, into being fully realized as, uh, as, as part of the exhibition. Yeah. Filmmaker John Smith, British filmmaker, comes out of structuralist cinema. This is still from maybe one of his better known works, uh, A Girl Chewing Gum, where it's, you know, the camera films a street corner and what happens on that street corner just unfolds, as it would if we were a spectator. Um, but there's a voiceover narration. So, like, man in striped pullover turns to look at camera, you know. So it's as if the, the voiceover is directing, directing the actions. And then another kind of um, narrative, moving into connecting into audience in a different way. This is a walking tour we made with... A, a young Canadian artist, uh, Ron Tran, starting to move into performance, starting to move outside of the gallery. Work with an Argentinian uh, playwright, these moments where theatre crosses over into art, Ma Mario Penzotti. And similarly, young writers uh, in, in Canada, everyone from like young art critics to students of literature, through to bloggers, et cetera, et cetera, were positioned in, in public space with a laptop, laptops connected wirelessly to big screens. You can just about make out. They were just with the instruction to write, to observe, and to type whatever, whatever they felt like. Thing, it could be like a dis very descriptive text. It could be that as the uh, observing life, uh, people going about their daily rituals, and that might just be the starting point for a, for a more imaginary uh, narrative. And similarly with the narrative, these are two young French artists, Louise Eve and uh, Chloe Mio, who came to Vancouver for a research visit. And then using water, since Vancouver's on the coast, but a lot of their work revolves around water as a metaphor in, in all of the different ways that we might consider water a metaphor for, for something. Um, they wove this performative story and worked with a group of uh, local students to perform it after, after they'd performed it for a week. So visitors to the gallery would come in. They would be offered a glass of water this is probably one of the most unusual requests I've ever had from an artist, and that's can you find a desalination machine? And so in the big green bucket was water that was collected off in English Bay, off the, you know, off the, uh, off the downtown coast of, uh, of Vancouver. Salt water, 
that went through the machine to, to make drinking water. So, you know, a, a physical transformation, a physical process. And then while you were sipping away at this water, which actually had, was, was in inverted commas, cleaner than Evian, had less minerals and stuff in it like that, so purer water, um, they recounted a series of episodes, storytellers, kind of quite enchanting as, as well, um, to do with local histories, to do with folklore and myth, to do with complete fabrication, but weave this story that eventually comes back round in the way that you know, the tide ebbs and flows and it comes back again and again and again. So a rather lovely cyclical set of relationships both to what they did as artists, but what you also did as a, as a, as a visitor, as a participant. And then importantly, I think that a contemporary art space somehow embodies ideas of civic desire that is identified as a, as a vital place. And that is one way is the, the sense that the peoples who make up the communities that make up the, the places in which we operate and work are somehow reflected in and of the institution. So here a young artist, First Nations heritage, uh, upper, uh, from uh, upper, upper Nicola Band, um, work grew out of a residency that we established with the Nishka nation in the north of the province. Not her own, not her own nation, a different nation, but oral, the oral traditions within indigenous peoples on the, uh, on the west coast of, uh, of Canada, reflected then in a, through a series of video works and, and objects that were made by Christabel, who's, who's just, just graduated from, um, from Bard. All the issues that I think are very present, actually, here in this part of the world and present in the work on, on display here, you know, issues to do with land, to do with ownership, to do with colonial histories, to do with identification, to do with self-assertion, representation by who and by whom and when, etc., etc. And the complexity of that and the, the, the critique of that from a, from a contemporary standpoint, mixing, mixing histories. Uh, the, the large woven piece here, for example, was actually taken from an archive photograph that Christabel found in the Nishka Museum, which no, she couldn't understand because it, sh it was sh showing the, the local peoples in ceremonial gear, which ordinarily wouldn't be photographed. And oddly standing at the center in the chief's uh, regalia was a woman, which again, almost unheard of. It's not, you know, not a maternalistic stru structure for society. And then going through the archive, she actually found the original glass plate negative, which had had some of the other people cut out. So this was like a reframing of the framing, and, uh, but also found out it was photographed by a First Nations person. So it wasn't a, a European colonial settler. So the complexity of that started to kind of unravel through the, through the research in the museum. And quite literally, this piece is, is, is woven from, uh, from, from, from that, those kind of investigations. 
and then also in Canada up in the Northern Territories, Nunavut, uh, a rather sort of complex set of relationships with, uh, with, 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 with Inuit peoples. This was a show of drawings we made with uh, IT Patugug from a long tradition of, uh, of, of within, his, within here, IT's family. Important, I think. This is the first time any Inuit work had been presented at the Contemporary Art Gallery, which I find strange. The drawings I find are absolutely incredibly sophisticated and, and, and compelling for all sorts of reasons. And then when I was at Icon, I worked with an artist from Ukraine, Yuri Leiderman, who very deliberately plays with geopolitics, who plays with ideas of identity, how identity is formed. Is it by a border state? Is it by faith? Is it by an imposition of something from, a, from another society? And all of that is embedded within Yuri himself. You know, he's Ukrainian, but people think he's Russian. He's also Jewish. So is he Jewish? Is he, Ru is he Russian when he was part of the Soviet Union as he grew up as a kid? Or is it, ne or is it now Ukrainian now that when, after Ukraine became an independent state? So you know, the kind of complexity that we all have in different ways with, within our own individual makeup. And here... Um, working with a series of uh, musicians who make up the different communities in Birmingham. And the kind of link here from that to this is uh, this big video projection and these moments where art touches, I've, I've already sort of touched a little bit of like art into theater. Those moments where sort of visual arts crosses over into other cultural disciplines. I think it's kind of important to, um, to reflect upon that. Here, uh, an artist working with a 1970s prog rock uh, musician. I think pretty much most people in the audience are too young to remember that. But there was a band called Emerson, Lake and Palmer. And this is working with Carl Palmer, the drummer, who composed a series of drum solos, a much maligned drum solo. Uh, German artist Jürgen Partenheimer works across drawing, painting, ceramics, printmaking, installation, architecture, and also music. Here with this... Uh, with this particular exhibition, I think probably one of the most expensive solo exhibitions I've ever worked on, because um, it involved commissioning um, uh, a piece of music by a contemporary classical composer, Kevin Volans, um, that was played by the city of the city of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra players, a small ensemble or series of ensembles from 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 them. So a very complicated project, not only to do with the visual arts, that was presented in, both inside and outside of the museum, but also then the performances, the commissioning of a new, new musical piece, the composer's fees, the musician's fees, etc., and then, of course, the publication. Or maybe moving into dance. This was a project we made, I made down in a, an old warehouse. Uh, solo cello and uh, uh, an artist whose art form is, is, is using the tango, Anthony Howell. 
Or maybe it's art crossing over into science. And the next few images of the, uh, of the project I made with uh, Olafur Eliasson and working with a scientist, uh, um, uh, Boris Eichermann. So the first room was this continual freeze, 306 degrees around the room. Uh, these are handmade um, engravings where each plate is inked by hand um, and moves through, through the full color spectrum, the visible to us as humans, the, 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 the visible spectrum, introducing the idea that actually what we think of as being fixed, you know, the idea of red or blue or green actually isn't. Each, each plate moves sometimes almost imperceptibly but moves from one tone to a, to a slightly different one. So conceptually introduces an idea that's, that actually what we think we're seeing is not a, it's not a static thing, it's, it's, it's something that's fluid. Then the middle room was the science bit, very deliberately structured with this particular gray and then these scientific uh, optical instruments for visitors to the, the, the gallery to, to, to use. And it was this very, you know, like a split ring, like you'd get in a 35mm camera that you, you used to focus. It's basically that, that as a, a structure. One machine was about blue and one machine was yellow, and it was about matching those colors. So, you know, you played around with a couple of dials until you thought you'd match the, the standard blue or the standard yellow, and then you hit send. And then that come, came out through projections in, in the third and final room. Just enough time for you to sort of get up, walk, and then ping, up in the top left-hand corner came your selection. And what immediately becomes apparent is um, we all see differently. And you are part of a community of people because these are the people who've gone before you, their, their, their attempt to, to color match. And of course, what the scientist was really excited about was the vistas to this exhibition were around about 12, 14,000 people. So in terms of raw data, compared to the usual 50 or 60 you might get in, in a conventional laboratory, he had a massive amount of data that made his research to do with optics even more pointed. Or it might be an architectural intervention, Aisha Erkerman. Uh, very simply, a series of um, false ceilings introduced into a gallery space to shift our perception of something that we think we know through color and through light and through physicality and an understanding of scale and proportion and dimension. Or this piece, art, uh, artists from China, this is we're back in Vancouver, Zhu Zhen. And what it was was just these mosquitoes that suck blood out of the walls. Rather nice comment on all sorts of relationships within the contemporary art world, one might argue. Moving into theatre, Robert Orchardson. An installation that referenced um, Isamu Noguchi with a series of designs that he'd made for the Royal Shakespeare Company. I forget when now, like mid-50s, that were aborted because the, Royals, the RSC thought they were um, somehow derogatory of, of, of Shakespeare's text. Uh, so Robert used that as a starting point to create this, this sort of immersive stage-like installation. 
that we entered through this triangular space into the gallery. And often when you were standing in the gallery sort of here-ish, it was this magical moment where someone would appear. And there was something about the triangular opening and the obliqueness in which you viewed it. That, some, that was not like a usual opening where you would see somebody walk through. There was something about the, just the simplicity of that form that made them like as if they had been teleported in, you know, like out of Star Trek. So a rather kind of magical thing to do with staging and to appearing on stage, you know, like the puff of smoke, and magician smoke. And these are a set of drawings by uh, a senior Chinese artist who one might label, if you use those kind of labels, outsider, no, no formal art training, Zhou Fengyi. And they're energy maps. You can see the sort of figurative suggestion of, of, of these pieces. All, all tied into belief systems to do with the, the body as a, at a human scale, the body at the scale of community and the body within, within a universal system. And Kagi's on the edge of Yale Town, which has loads of yoga places. Certain lifestyle thing, but there is a sharing of certain, or in, in, in its truest sense, uh, a sharing of a certain sort of spiritual theoretical underpinning to the activity beyond the more contemporary lifestyle associations than it has today. And then there's Karita Kent. Work all from the decade, work that selected specifically from the 60s. Um, starting from very early, early work, it's just out of frame, through to the, the work becoming more and more and more and more politicized as that decade wore on, to do with her involvement in the civil rights movement, feminist movement, the avant-garde art circle she mixed in, people like John Cage, Buckminster Fuller, etc., etc. And she was a nun on the uh, West Coast in LA. And all of these prints that grew out of community workshops, screen printing workshops that she ran, uh, and became the starting point for a series of social activation, I think. Uh, so we sort of entered into the spirit of Carita and uh, had a carnival band and workshops, and we all got a little kind of hippie for a while out there on the West Coast. Alongside Carita presented this work, and this, this, this sequence of, of images now are really to do with, uh, the, I mean, and again, thinking back to that very early piece by Martin that I showed, the idea that somehow an institution is porous, that somehow an institution connects in, in very real ways um, through outreach, through public programming, but also through how and where work is presented and how one reaches out to meet one's audience, to shake their hand metaphorically, and how the skin of the building can become like this porous membrane Sorry, is the this, on this side of the building? It's double height. Uh, this side of the building, it's single height, and that's the offices. But but the whole of that facade is the gallery building. Yes. So this is um, 
Costa Rican artist Federico Herrero, primarily known for large-scale murals coming out of, to make a simplistic overstatement, uh, coming out of a certain kind of Latin American, socially orientated, politically orientated works made in public places, murals, mur mural tradition. You know. First, we, we got him to work on, on, on the windows with colored vinyl, you know, cutting out rather like Matisse. Um, and actually, that was the thing that sold it to him. Managed to persuade him that this way of working might be, might be interesting to him. Very different piece that we put across the facade, this time with uh, an artist from Mexico, Stefan Bruggemann. The texts being a mixture of last lines from movies, Hollywood films, and the, the daily headlines in the newspapers, the local and national newspapers in Canada, which are obviously some local issues, but other sort of world events as well, dur during the, the time it took to actually make, make the piece of work. This caused uproar in the, uh, the neighbourhood, because people thought it would incite people to graffiti everywhere. Now clearly it's not graffiti, because it's not tagged in the way that a graffiti artist would tag something, and clearly what is written is not graffiti, in terms of if you read it, but it got a few people worried. Rather interestingly, I thought that this is a great demonstration of not to underestimate one's audience, because there wasn't any graffiti put anywhere, and actually what it did is activate social space so people were using this as a backdrop you know would come and like do a little song with the guitar and be filmed by their pals or would skateboard past it or would do a tap dance and stuff like that so it became like this theatrical backdrop at which other performances in social space took part playing with the very physicality of the space here since the the outside of the building was designed it could have easily been a 7-eleven um, before it was ever determined to be a public art gallery. So playing um, with windows, with display, with uh, like a consumerist critique with uh, German artist Josephine Maxepper. And again, a lot of these works are commissioned, you know, because they don't exist. They're made specifically for, for these locations. Neon work by uh, British artist Tim Etchells, really best known for theatre work or theatre art performance with forced entertainment. And American artist Kay Rosen, rather sort of beautiful, succinct description of what is being made and what is read and how it's made. And then playing with light, uh, local Vancouver artist Scott Massey, photographer, but his work is all about light and the mechanisms whereby light reveals imagery. And then often we'll tie things in. We, 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 we often use this subway station to present work as well. Again, large-scale commissions out in the public realm. Gunilla Klingberg, Swedish artist. Just probably just, the, oh, oh, these Mandela patterns uh, made using uh, corporate logos of high street stores. So a conflation of two different value systems. This caused a bit of an uproar as well. The people, the, the company who run the, um, the subway station, their marketing department was a little worried. It would make all their poster sites redundant. A bit 
again, un underestimating things. Nicolas Sassoon, French-Canadian. And Mungo Thompson, LA artist, who we worked with on a couple of occasions, both a gallery show and, uh, and this off-site piece. Beautiful sort of stained glass. And then other areas. Simon Patterson, um, British artist. These, this uh, a series of events of um, coloured smoke, the, the kind of smoke signals that are used by the military um, that make these rather sort of beautiful plays on the picturesque within a very English tradition of landscape and within constructed landscape within the, uh, the, the environment of these botanic gardens. That um, that being used for tra as training ground for the military during the Second World War, so a, a little kind of play on, on the particular histories of, 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 of place and location. And then uh, an artist, Gareth Moore, who organized uh, a series of commissions as his project when we worked with him, um, with a series of other artists, uh, a series of films for children, and only children were allowed with one adult into the screening. And sometimes it was in a tent in a park, sometimes it was in a community center. Um, so yeah, adults were only allowed with children, so inverting the usual way in which art might be viewed, you know, children can only be accompanied by an adult. And work that was made specifically by artists for children, not for adults. And a further inversion of showing the work outside of gallery spaces rather than inside of gallery spaces. And the kids were just as equally fascinated by the fact that it was a 16 mil projector, a technology that they were not familiar with, um, as, 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 as much as think uh, by, by the films themselves. There's a project I made in Birmingham with a German artist, Wolfgang Violader, which is this sort of choreography of building and unbuilding that happened across a big public square. So as some walls were going up, some walls were coming down. The overall form, if you saw a time-lapsed movie, would be um, based on a series of terraced houses that originally would have occupied this site. But again, that idea that you know, what we think of as static, what we think of as permanent, actually is, is constantly in flux. The duration, perhaps, is not visible to the, to the naked eye. And again, working with you know, building apprentices as, um, who were learning how to make buildings and lay, lay bricks and make things with concrete. And this is working with uh, an artist in a, a nursery, a, a kindergarten. Weird thing about this, it's in an industrial part of Birmingham. All warehouse, factory buildings, and then you've got this modernist pavilion. Looks like a local Bousier building has been parachuted in. Very sort of weird. Falling a little bit into disrepair, so actually what we did, one half of the building, we renovated it and returned it to its original uh, finish and colour scheme as specified within you know, the, the, the original architectural plans uncovering these golden egg yolk yellow tiles, painting everything white, dark gray, and then uh, the artist made a couple of interventions of these wall drawings that echoed some of the kids, you know, kind of cartoons that had been painted in the playground. A bit of a funny image to show, this is the project I, this is the project I made with Susan Phillips, who's best known for working with sound. Um, 
This was an in insertion into a, a multiplex cinema program. You know, the bit before the main feature when you get the ads for different things and then the trailers for forthcoming attractions. Um, and what Susan did is select four songs. The, the title of the piece is called Songs to be Sung in a Cinema. And she selected songs from four movies where the song itself propels the narrative forward. Um, so what was projected, it was 35 mil projection, so it's just the sort of, you know, the pops and the scratches and the bits of dust that, that you would see uh, as the film itself is projected, but the mag tracker got the soundtrack. So it was, um, there was one piece that was done on tuba, uh, but the other was you know, for what Susan is best known, her unaccompanied uh, voice singing, singing the songs. And I can't remember what, well, movies that I remember one was from Night, Night of the Hunter um, but I can't remember off the top of my head what, 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 the, what the other three films were this is a participatory performance uh, made in a, the public library in Vancouver with Tim Etchells these two people are strangers but are both following and actually as one of the artists I did a studio visit with today this, this, idea came, this idea came to mind that both have been fed different narratives and different instructions to do with context, to do with describing a series of instructions to undertake a series of, of gestures and performances, which obviously the other person sitting at your side is taking note of because what they're hearing in their headset is maybe contradicting what you're doing or is calling into doubt. What, 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 what you are doing and so heightens one's awareness of, of context and the activity itself. And this is a project I made for Venice Biennale in 2005 with a British Ghanaian artist, Grace Inderitu. Um, video projection onto, onto the old altar in a little oratorio. This, this, I, I put this one in because this, this is interesting insofar as Grace sent a VHS tape in to Icon, unsolicited, and kind of watched it and thought, mm, or, I have to say, <laughs> it's been recorded, so whoever listened to it, for the most part, an often unsolicited material, there's perhaps a reason why it's unsolicited. Let's go about it that far. But it coincided when Grace had got a piece of work in a, in a small municipal museum in a group show. So I kind of went along and saw it. And it was kind of incredible, mature, economic. It's, it's basically her with this piece of fabric, tying it, wrapping her head, unwrapping her head. So all sorts of associations obviously come to, come to mind. Um, and it just seems such a powerful, powerful, piece of work for, for such a young artist, such a confident statement. And so we decided to take it to the Venice Biennale. So the moral of the story being, um, there, are, there are these moments when, when things become un, 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 uncovered. This is a project I didn't do, but I put it in because I think it's such a beautiful, pro beautiful project. This is on Kawara date paintings in a kindergarten in Bethlehem. So I don't need to explain all the things to do with time and duration that are implicit within On's work, but within gathering layers of meaning through, through its deliberate 
um, deliberate uh, presentation in, in, in this space, in this contested, uh, in this contested city. Um, and this, this was a project Icon made as part of the Palestinian Biennale. And then Recruit Tidavanija. This was one of the, this was the first project I worked on jointly with the director when I, I started at Icon. And one room was the recreation of his favorite bar in Mexico. And it operated as a bar for the duration of the show. Um, so that goes back to my comment about galleries being social hubs, being community spaces, being places that people can identify with, see themselves reflected in, wanting to participate. And it was like a bar, you know, served drinks, had a pool table, had a jukebox. And rather nicely, it became the place for, Icon is surrounded by offices, you know, but banks and insurance companies and stuff like that. All the, a lot of office workers used to come and have their lunch there, you know, bring their packed lunch of sandwiches. It became rather encouraging to think that it was, it was being used in this way. And then sort of a, a different kind of return here. This was uh, Andy Warhol, early films, silent films from the early 60s when he first began to make moving, moving images, when he said he'd given up making painting and presenting them in an old warehouse, an old factory. So returning the work made at the early stages of the silver factory to a factory. And then performance homages with uh, younger artists and a party, because we all like a good party. So again, returning, so the exhibition space became the factory, for, for, or an homage to the factory, to this particular moment in time, uh, when, the, when these incredible films were being made. And that's out of place, I should have shown that alongside Federico's piece. It's, it was a public programming project we made, so apologies for that, with, um, using smartphone technology, the, the, the app you can download, Layer. So work with software engineers to recode, to introduce our own layers into that. And anywhere on the downtown peninsula in Vancouver, you could draw in similar sort of abstract colored blocks, you know, click and drag, and then using the camera device, click with the street scene. And then there was a hashtag Twitter thing that you forwarded the image you took back to the gallery. So again, rather like Olafor's piece, which showed the community of participation, uh, these beca this became an ever-growing archive of, uh, and a record of, uh, of, of people who, who engaged with the work in a very, a very physical way. And these last few images now are, are, are more to do with the, the, a strand of our programming that is more to do with residences and, 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 and a, 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 a practice practice of artists that moves outside of the gallery, that is not about a white cube presentation, but it's about a different kind of social activation that grows out of, over a longer period of time. Uh, our residency program, artists often visit Vancouver three, four times over the course of two to three years and slowly establish meaningful relationships with different peoples, different communities who they work with and the period of consultation and discussion and conversation that evolves. So this is a group called Broken City Lab. That's Justin, Justin 
Langlois of Broken City Lab. This is one of the very early public discussions. That reflecting on Vancouver as a particular example of a particular kind of urban environment. You know, good points, bad points, things you'd like to change, things that you'd like amplified, etc., etc. They become these kind of social occasions. And then a number of public projects grow out of that as, as event-based temporary interventions into the urban fabric. Series of projections uh, with texts, comments that were were made by, 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 by citizens. So, you know, Vancouver, any of you have ever been to Vancouver? It's in a rather incredible natural landscape as a city. But it also has some social problems. One that is not so known is it's home to the poorest postal code in the whole of Canada, which is something that, you know, the view of the mountains and the ocean somehow masks and people who, who are living on the downtown east side in extreme poverty um, a very real set of social considerations and then as shared set of concerns I, th I think in many ways uh, in Canada the whole relation of the you know colonial history European settlers taking land from, from, from First Nations. So what grew out of particular consultation with the, the, three, the three bands who, uh, who own the land that the city of Vancouver is built on, uh, a whole series of, uh, th through a series of workshops with different representatives, a whole series of flags were erected in, uh, in, in, in public places, declaring the most obvious things. This was a project with Marie Lorenz. We like going along the seashore, gathering stuff that gets washed up. She built a boat out of stuff that was gathered on the seashore. And it floats. <laughs> she came back last summer for her third, fourth and final visit and had a series of participatory expeditions from the source of the Fraser River down to the coast and then out in amongst the Gulf Islands. So there were two other people in the boat with her, and there was live, you know, use of technology with live streaming, uh, videoing the, and recording the conversations, exploring, using the currents to explore parts of uh, the coastline that ordinarily you can't gain access to through, um, you know, by, by, by road or by foot. And uh, I think, this, this, this is close to the, almost at the last. There's about two projects left. This was a project we made with a Japanese artist, Shimabuku, uh, in, in Birmingham, which is a kite flying event. And the poetic idea that originally this land was underwater, you know, geologically, this land, it, you know, the fossils, etc., you know that this land is underwater. So, what, hap what would happen if you tried to poetically return to that moment in time? What happens if you could make the sky turn into the sea again? by flying kites of, 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 of fish and sea mammals. Two projects to do with exchange, to do with value, how value is inscribed into our objects, how through participation we engage in that exchange. Here with a, a, an artist collective from Thailand, Soy Projects. So what begins the days of fruit, fruit stall 
you are then invited to pick a series of nets, these printed flat sheets that have different, and then you can assemble these different fruits. And then you exchange a real piece of fruit for the piece of fruit you've made. So over the course of the event, the fruit, the, the fruit stall changes from being real fruit to, to made fruit. Australian artist who we're working with at the moment, uh, Keg D'Souza. Keg's been to Vancouver twice now. She's coming again uh, next year for the third and fourth visits. A series of these picnics that she's perhaps best, best known for that begin to examine particular colonial histories through the metaphor of food, food production, food consumption. This mapping of conversations through drawing. And again, Keg has worked with indigenous uh, First Nations in Vancouver to, for, uh, to follow um, traditional foraging um, pathways, collecting fruit and collecting blackberries as a non-indigenous um, non plant form. And then there were a series of jam-making workshops was one of, the, one of the projects that came out of it. And finally, a, pro a project we made at Icon with an um, Italian artist, Cesare Petrusti, where we took over the cafe and as staff, we all became waiters for a 24-hour period. And it started at six in the evening, went through the night until six the following evening. Cesare cooked a series of dishes, starters, main courses, salads, desserts. You could select one dish at a time. You had to clear your plate, didn't want to waste anything but you could eat as many dishes as you liked until you were sated. And then, as is typical at the end of a meal, you're presented with the bill. But in this case, you were also presented with the money to the value of the food that you'd eaten, which immediately makes you contemplate all sorts of things to do with what it is you've just consumed, to do with production, consumption, value, etc., etc. And that's it. Thank you.